Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the time that we get to spend studying your word. Uh, we thank you for the way it informs our lives. We thank you for the way it reveals uh, your character to us, Lord. And uh, you know, we would, we would not know of Jesus Christ apart from the Bible. And we just uh, we thank you for giving it to us. We thank you uh, for Jesus dying on Calvary's cross for us, Lord. We thank you that, that uh, our sins, the things that we have done wrong, are paid for. And that you have made us right with you uh, through Jesus Christ. And, and what a, a, an amazing truth that is, Lord. I pray that as we study your word, uh, that it would help us to, to live lives uh, that you've called us to live, Lord. Not just uh, muddling through this, this world, but, uh, but living purposeful lives for you. Uh, help us to understand what you have for us this morning. Help us to live it um, as we leave uh, here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. He goes on in 4.3, says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I don't know about you, but I think that describes our culture pretty good. Okay, pretty well. We've been talking about marriage. And a good example of this, the stuff that we're talking about is so important, even if you're not married. And it's important because our culture has turned away from the truth and embraced lies. And not just our culture. You know, we would, we would expect them to do that and ungodless people to to not act godly. You know, this, this recent Respect for Marriage Act it was really no surprise that our Senate and our House would pass that. But I tell you what shocks me, and what I think Paul is talking about to Timothy, is that there were Christian organizations, people who proclaim the name of Christ, that supported that act. Just to name a few, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Presbyterian Church USA, the Church of Christ, the National Association of Evangelicals, Seventh-day Adventists, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities endorsed this Respect for Marriage Act. That's why it's so important that we have a chance to talk to you about marriage because even people who claim Christ have accumulated them for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. Or maybe your translation says, will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. So I have a quick exercise for us this morning. I want everybody, two hands, tickle, or scratch your ears. Let's get it out of the way. All right, there we go. Now we're done, because the rest of this is not going to be ear tickling. Okay. It's not going to itch your ears. It's going to be hard teaching. It's going to be hard teaching. We're looking at marriage this morning, and if anybody noticed the, uh, the, name, the title of the sermon in your bulletin, you're probably going, what the what is he talking about? We're going to talk about suffering in marriage this morning, suffering well in marriage. But I want you to hear my heart. This is not coming from a place of condemnation. This is not coming from a place of, of judgment. This is not me up here saying, hey, I've got it all figured out. I'm preaching to myself, teaching myself just as much as I am to you guys. Back in Timothy, at the beginning of 4, which I skipped over, Paul charges Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and all, or of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. 
That's our goal here at Del Rio Bible Church. We just want to preach the word. We're not up here giving you self-help tips. We study the word during the week, and Joe normally, Chris, when he preaches me, when I preach, we try to tell you what we found out, what we found through our study of the word. That's all we're doing. That's what we want to do. That's what we're committed to do here at Del Rio Bible Church. And we, as Christ followers, who in this room would claim to be a Christ follower? Okay, we should want to know what God has to say so that we can follow it. What God tells us in our word. You get that through your personal study. You get it when you come here on Sunday mornings. Marriage is under attack. So we need this teaching. We need to know what's going on. We need to know what the word tells us about marriage. And we've talked about it over the last several weeks. We've talked about the basis of marriage. We've talked about the roles in marriage. We've talked about how to handle conflict well in marriage. We talked about sex in marriage last week and some other things. And this morning I want to talk about suffering in marriage. And those are not two words a lot of people want to put in the same sentence. Okay, but it's a fact of life. We, we, we understand that we live in a fallen world because it's a sinner married to a sinner. Sometimes marriage is difficult. And last time I spoke, two weeks ago, we talked about, hey, how we can each, husband and wife, be in the spirit and help our marriage to thrive and resolve the conflicts. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes one or the other of us doesn't walk with the spirit. And that can make marriage really, really difficult. That can make marriage a struggle. It may be a struggle for a week. It may be a struggle for months. It may be a struggle for years. So I want to look at what the scripture tells us about when our marriages become struggles. Because every single marriage, I hate to break it to you guys over here that are getting married next week, <laughs> every single marriage has struggles. Okay? Every single marriage has struggles. We're going to go through lots of scripture today that I don't have time to go and actually read, but I'm going to give you references so you can look it up later. And you ought to look it up later to see if what I'm saying is so. Okay, you not, ought not to believe me. Be a good Berean. They listened to Paul, and then they went and checked the scriptures to see what, if what he said was so. And we always want you to do that here at Del Rio Bible Church. But marriage struggles because we have sinners married to sinners. Okay, that's always the case. But I guarantee you, even when we have two Christians living together in marriage, if your marriage is struggling... Okay, it's because one or both of you is not following what God has told you to do. Okay, one or both of you is not walking in the Spirit. Okay. Guarantee you that's why you're having a problem. Okay. So if we'll both walk in the Spirit, hey, everything's great. But in those times when one of us is not walking in the Spirit, we need this teaching. We need what Peter has to tell us this morning. This is also important if you're not married. If you're a young person not married yet, hopefully this will apply to you in the future. But even if you're not married, if you know... How many people in here know somebody who's married? Okay? I'm guessing that applies to every single one of us. Okay? We know somebody who's married. We know a Christian couple. And there may be a time, and it's probably happened to most of you already, since we have a fairly mature... Old, mature I'll say mature, not older. Mature group in here. That one of your friends has come to you and told you about their struggles in their marriage. Told you about things that are going wrong. So even if you're not married, you need to understand this scripture so that you can help that Christian brother or sister through that difficult time. Through that difficult time. This is also very applicable to anybody who's in an unequally yoked marriage. Okay, we're not going to go into it. Today, but we know we're commanded, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, we're commanded not to be unequally yoked, whether it be business, marriages, because what part has light with darkness, right? But sometimes, you know, I, I know it's hard to believe, but there are times when Christians actually go against the word of God, and they become unequally yoked, because they get stars in their eyes and whether they say it's going to be a missionary thing i know i know i can win them to christ whatever they don't follow god's command 
and you end up being unequally yoked. Or maybe you're unequally yoked because you and your spouse were unbelievers, and one of you has become a believer since then. That's another reason why there may be unequally yoked. That happened a lot in the first century as the gospel spread, and it still happens today as the gospel spreads. But regardless, whether it's because you have a Christian that's not walking with Christ, and that's making a marriage difficult, or because you have an, a non-Christian who you can't expect to act like a Christian, right? They're not walking with Christ, and that's making a marriage difficult. Sometimes our marriages get on the struggle bus. Jan and I have been married for 31 years. Hallelujah, amen. Working on our 32nd year. There have been times when one or both of us have wanted to say, boy, it sure would be easier just to walk out the door and go somewhere else. Thankfully, we didn't do that because we're following God. We need to be committed to our marriages. Joe ended last week talking about commitment to marriages, commitment to the institution of marriage, commitment to our spouse. And I'm going to say this morning, what Peter's telling us is committed to God. If you are committed to God, then you will understand that you have to stay in your marriage. You have to learn how to suffer well through the struggling parts of your marriage. And the idea is not to stay in that suffer forever, although you may have to, especially if you're unequally yoked, but hopefully not. The point is to get through that struggling well until your marriage thrives. And that's what you're wanting to do. Obviously, we all want a thriving marriage. We all want to follow God and have our marriages thrive. So although divorce has become ubiquitous in our culture, and even in Christian churches, if you look at the statistics, Christians, I hate to tell it, we don't do much better than the world at large as far as our divorce statistics. A little bit better, but not much better, and this ought not to be. And why is that? It's because we've gotten teachers that will tickle our ears instead of telling us the truth. We're wanting to tell you the truth this morning. We have to stay committed to our marriage. God hates divorce. You know, it's funny, uh, I was working with uh, a couple that were struggling, and we went through the whole God hates divorce thing, Malachi 2, 14 through 16, uh, Matthew 5, 32, Mark 10, 4 through 12, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. And one of these people sent me a link saying, what about this? And it was a so-called Christian organization that has an entire website on happy Christian divorce. And I went and looked at it, and it just makes me shake my head. And their whole point was that when it says in Malachi, God hates divorce, that that's a poor translation of that specific word. And they went through a whole lot of things. They see God doesn't really hate divorce. And they missed the entire concept of Malachi. Go read Malachi 2 this afternoon, and you can't come to any other conclusion other than God does not want divorce. God does not want us divorced. It is not what he wants for us. But unfortunately today, many Christians, when they get in a difficult, struggling time in their marriage, they buy into the lie of the culture that God wants you to be happy. That's God's overriding thing is that he wants you to be happy. Does God want us to have happy marriages? Absolutely he does. It's why he's told us how we go about doing our marriage that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. God wants us to be happy in marriage, but it's not his overriding concern. Joe brought up the quote, I think the first week that he preached, about God. what if God created marriage to make us holy more than make us happy? Okay, God wants us to be happy, but never at the expense of our holiness. Never at the expense of our holiness. But so many people, when they start struggling in marriage, go for that D word, because they bought into the lie that one, I'll be happier if I get out of this marriage and God wants me to be happy. And two, they think that it's going to be easier to go through the divorce process and live the divorced life than it is to stay married. I come from a twice divorced mother. I can tell you it's not easier. Okay, anybody that's come from a divorced family know that it's not easier. Okay. Does God want us to be happy? Sure. Psalm 37, 4, Matthew 7, 7 through 12. But again, not at the expense of holiness. 
The Bible is replete with stories about God working on his people's holiness and trying to get them to be holy. And he would put them in some very unhappy situations to try to get them to forsake what they were doing and be holy. We're never commanded to be happy as God is happy. We are commanded to be holy as God is holy. Unhappiness is not a biblical grounds for divorce. And you're not going to hear that a whole lot of places in pulpits. But it's true. Unhappiness in a marriage is not biblical grounds for divorce. We need to learn how to suffer well through the unhappy times until our marriages thrive in accordance with God's word again. I got to take just a second, though, to, to talk to those in this room that maybe are divorced, have been divorced. And I want to tell you, this is not, I, I know it can, you can feel like I'm beating you up. That's not the intention, okay? This is an instructional thing. This is to instruct us on our way forward. Remember, there is no condemnation in Christ. Christ paid for all the sins that we've done in the past. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short. And Christ nailed all that stuff to the cross. So this is not a sermon to make people that have been through a divorce feel bad. This is a sermon to teach all of us how not to do that in the future. What's behind is behind. Christ has paid for it. He's faithful. He's cleansed us of our sins as long as we've confessed. And we're supposed to look forward, to run the race set before us, not look behind. Satan will want to bring up your past, but God's forgiven it. And he wants you to move forward. So I don't want you to think that this is condemnation on you. So I can't get divorced. Divorce is not an option for a Christian. Again, there's two biblical exceptions. Joe mentioned before. We can talk about that offline. That's not the intent of this sermon, okay? But it's not a biblical option. So I can't get divorced, but I can get even, right? My spouse is not doing what she's supposed to do so instead of getting a divorce i'll just get even yeah that's what scripture teaches no absolutely not absolutely not we're told not to repay evil for evil but to overcome evil with good romans 12 14 7, 12 17 through 21 first peter 3 8 and 9 that we'll read in a little bit we're call, called to pray for those who persecute us i can't talk Pray for those who persecute us. And I know when you're in a struggling marriage, or if you're in your marriage happens to be struggling at that time, you can feel like you're being persecuted. Okay, it cannot be fun. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Responding in kind just makes things worse. You don't hear a lot of stories about people straightening out their lives and coming to Christ and really deciding to live a Christ-like life because their spouse just kept retaliating and taking it to them. Okay? That's not what the scripture tells us to do. So we can't get even. I can't get divorced. What else could I do? I could live a separate life, even if I'm living in the same house. We could just have peaceful coexistence. And I'll tell you, I think that was rampant for many, many centuries before divorce became socially acceptable. That's what people had to do. That's not what God calls us to do. He wants our marriages to thrive. So instead of divorcing, retaliating, or living separate lives, we're commanded to suffer well in marriage. Well, Steve, I don't remember reading that in Scripture. I've talked to people about marriage. Nobody has ever told me to suffer well in marriage. Let's turn to 2 Peter. Sorry, I keep saying 2 Peter. 1 Peter... Chapter 2 we're going to be in, but 1 Peter 3 is where we're going to start. Verses 1 through 7. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle 
and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now obviously this is talking primarily about functional roles in marriage. Chris covered that on the 20th of November, so I'm not going to rehash that today. If you want to uh, get a refresher on the functional roles in marriage, go listen to, the, to Chris's sermon from November 20th of this year. He covered that. I want to look at the first words of that verse in 3.1. It says, in the same way. Your translation may say likewise. Also in verse 7, you husbands, likewise. Or again, your translation may say in the same way. What way? What is Peter talking about? What is God trying to tell us through Peter in the same way? Well, you have to go back to 1 Peter 2. You have to get the context. You could probably go all the way back to verse 11, but I think the immediate context there points it back to verse 18. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure, it finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you will continually strain like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls in the same way. You wives, be submissive to your own husbands. You husbands, likewise, or in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding manner. We learn four things here from God through Peter. And the first that we've talked about at several times in the past is that what we're commanded to do as either husbands or wives is not contingent about what the other spouse is doing. God doesn't give us if-then clauses. If your wife is being wonderful, then treat her well. If your husband is following the word of God, then be submissive. That's not what God tells us. As a matter of fact, this passage really makes it clear that what you're called to do, you're called to do regardless of what your spouse is doing. 1 Peter 3, 1 again, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word. It's talking to wives who have husbands that are being disobedient to the word. Husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding manner. When he's talking about the masters, the servants to his masters, when he starts this whole thing, he says, treat them, be submissive and treat them with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. What we're called to do has nothing to do with what our spouse is doing. It's not transactional. Husbands, you're called to act in a certain way regardless of what your wife does. Wives, you are called to act in a certain way regardless of what your husband is doing. So one, what we're commanded to do is not contingent on our spouse. It's just what we're commanded to do. Two, suffering in unjust situations finds favor with God. 1 Peter 2.20 again. 
For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you will pay, and if you patiently endure it, it finds favor with God. Suffering in unjust situations finds favor with God. Our spouse being mean, not walking in the Spirit, doing awful things to us is an unjust situation. But we're called to suffer through it, and that finds favor with God. For further reference, you can go look at uh, Luke 6, 31 through 35, and it will take, you can find more Bible passages from there. So one, what we're commanded to do is not contingent on what our spouse does. Two, suffering in unjust situations finds favor with God. Three, suffering is one of the purposes for which God called us. Oh, that just doesn't preach very well, does it? Hey, God called us to suffer. Guess what? God called us to suffer, people. 1 Peter 2, 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Philippians 1, 29 tells us that it was granted to us, it was given to us to suffer for Christ as believers. The rest of, of uh, 1 Peter chapters 3 uh, and 4 talk a lot about this suffering for Christ. Some highlights. 4, 1, and 2. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the, in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. 3.17 For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather, rather than for doing what is wrong. 4.12-16 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. Obviously those passages aren't talking specifically about marriage, but Peter did apply that to marriage earlier. It's not that we suffer everywhere other than in our marriage. When our marriages are struggling, Peter calls us to suffer well. So one, what we're commanded to do is not contingent upon what our spouse does. Two, suffering in unjust situations finds favor with God. Three, suffering is one of the purposes God called us for. And four, Jesus is our example. Back to 1 Peter 2, 20. Sorry, 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. In 23, it talks about what that example is. It says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. So he did not retaliate. He did not overcome or repay evil with evil. He overcame evil with good. He did not revile in a turn. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He did it quietly. He suffered quietly. That ties directly into 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2, where it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Not uttering threats, not nagging, but silently following God. One author said this, he said, The powerful purity of a godly woman's life can soften even the stoniest male heart without a word. And I would say that applies for a godly man as well. A godly man can soften an ungodly woman. So Christ gave us an example 
By, while he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. While he was suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He trusted God. He trusted his father. He trusted the perfect judge, the righteous judge. Do we trust God? We say we do. If we trust him, we need to suffer well when our marriages are struggling and trust him for the outcome. Let me read 1 Peter 1 and 7 in the NLT, the New Living Translation, because I like the way it puts it very clearly for us after, in, in light of the teaching that we've just gone over. 1 Peter 3, 1, 1 says, In the same way you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. 1 Peter 1, 7, In the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. In the same way, so as Christ suffered, we are called to suffer well in marriage. Likewise, wives and husbands. Peter sums it up in 8 and 9. He says, to sum up, hey, to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. We are called to suffer well in marriage. And I've got to tell you, that's a whole lot easier to stand up here and say than it is to do in the trenches. Right? A whole lot easier to stand up here and say than it is to do if you're in that struggle bus portion of your marriage. But again, do we trust God? Are we willing to do what he tells us to do? There can be no doubt that scripture calls us to suffer well in marriage when necessary. But how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, two weeks ago, we covered the five keys for handling conflict in marriage. And I'm going to propose to you that we use those same five keys to suffer well in marriage. And they were, love the Lord your God with all that is in you. Love your spouse as yourself. Respond to difficulty or conflict in the spirit, not in the flesh. Be quick to ask for and grant forgiveness. And realize that we can't change our spouse, so stop trying. I want to go through these and highlight each one a little bit. I don't want to rehash everything that we went through two weeks ago, but just highlight a little bit about the suffering, uh, how these things help us to suffer well in marriage until our marriages get to that place where they're thriving again. And I want to start with number five. We can't change our spouse, so stop trying. Okay, man, so many of us, when things are going poorly in our marriage, go, if I could just fix my wife. Dude, everything would be great. If I could just fix my husband, it would be fantastic. And I'm telling you, that's, that is a wrong outlook on things. I know some of you have had family or friends come to you and start complaining about their spouse and maybe asking you to help them. That's why it's so important that we know this. We cannot help that person. When somebody comes in to us for marital counseling, and starts complaining about their spouse, we do not help them by saying, yeah, man, your wife sounds like a real monster, or your husband sounds like a real monster. Let's, let's put together a 10-step plan to change them. That is not ever going to work. It is not ever going to work. It's not going to work for us. It's not going to work for you. Because God's the only one that can change that person's heart. So we've got to stop trying. And all that comes from a very self-righteous place. When I say, if Jana would just do this man that's coming from a very self-righteous place and it has no place in marriage i'm going to read a, a fairly extended quote here to you but looking at self-righteousness you can go to matthew 7 1 through 5 romans 2 1 romans 12 3 j uh, sorry james 7 or james 4 7 through 12 
I'm going to read a little bit of an extended quote here. And as I read this, those of you who are married are going to see yourselves in it. It's almost hard for me to read because I see myself in it so much. This comes from Paul David Tripp talking about this self-righteousness. He says, the deception of personal righteousness is a huge wall in the way of marital change. Out of the quote, this is me again for a second. Man, we want to change our spouse. And our marriages don't get better. They don't get off the struggle bus. And one of the reasons they don't get off the struggle bus is because instead of suffering well in marriage and letting God change our spouse, we try to change our spouse. And it doesn't work. Here we go. The deception of personal righteousness is a huge wall in the way of marital change. Here's how it works. The husband views himself as righteous and views his wife as a sinner in need of help. The wife views herself as righteous and views her husband's as, husband as a sinner in need of help. So neither feels the need for personal change while being quite upset that the other sees no need for personal change. Each becomes more dissatisfied, impatient, and bitter while the condition of the marriage worsens. Because a husband is convinced that he is righteous and his wife is not righteous, he doesn't feel the need to look at or examine himself. That leaves him with only one conclusion, that the problems in the marriage are his wife's fault. So he watches her all the more hyper-vigilantly. And because she is less than a perfect person, he collects more and more evidence to support his view of the marriage struggles. Each day makes him more convinced that his wife is the one who needs to change, not him. Rather than being grieved at the weakness and selfishness in his own heart, he finds it harder and harder to deal with hers. He struggles to be patient with her and secretly wishes she could be more like him. The posture is dangerous. This posture is dangerous to any relationship, but devastating to the health of a marriage. Few things prevent change in marriage more than a distorted sense of self. Few things are more needed than eyes to see ourselves with clarity and accuracy. But he ends with this. He says, but there is hope. Because grace decimates self-righteousness. Amen. We have got to see ourselves rightly. We have got to live in the grace of Jesus Christ. We have got to suffer well in marriage as God changes our spouse. So when somebody, a family or friend, comes to you and starts complaining about their spouse, try to gently move them from that position to seeing their own sin and seeing their own position in it and convince them that God calls us to be the best husband or wife we can be in marriage no matter what our spouse is doing. And we just pray for our spouse and let God change our spouse. And while we're waiting, we suffer well. We can help the change process. As 1 Peter tells us that we just looked at, we can help the change process by being the best husband or wife that we can possibly be, by following God. We can work on overcoming our own sin. And I almost hate to bring this up, but it's biblical, so I have to. We can and should lovingly admonish and correct our believing spouse. Again, I almost hate to say that because you guys are going to run out and go, honey, here's the list of things that I see wrong. And Pastor Steve said I should tell you about it. We can and should lovingly admonish and correct our believing spouse, Galatians 6, 1 or 2, or our believing brother or sister. But a couple of things that we need to remember, okay, that has to come from a place of deep abiding love. This is not done out of, these are the changes you need to make. This is a loving thing. Two, you got to ask for wisdom from God before you open your mouth. Because there might just be a time when, you know, right now might not be the best time to say that. If I ask for wisdom, then God may tell you, you, know, you can bring that up, not this moment, but maybe here in a little bit. Okay, ask, ask for them. It's not licensed to nag. It doesn't mean I bring it up each and every time. I know I just said this five minutes ago, but then you did it again. So I got to bring it up again. Not a license to nag. And you've got to do it using only edifying words. I know I went over this passage last, last time, but I want to go over it again because it's so good. Ephesians 
4, 29 through 32. When you're helping to admonish, encourage um, somebody, it's got to be, again, when you're admonishing somebody, it's got to be encouraging. It's got to be loving. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ also has forgiven you. It's got to be encouraging, loving, edifying to your spouse. Again, we can't change our spouse, but God can. While we're waiting, we need to continue doing the other four things, the other four keys. We need to love the Lord our God with all that is in you. So important. Like we talked about last time, the best thing you can do for your marriage is improve your relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's so important when you're, when you're struggling in marriage. When, one of, when your spouse isn't being godly, it's so important for you to draw closer to God. You've got to get your worth from him, not from your spouse. And that's the case for us Christians all the time. Our worth is in Jesus Christ. It's not in our job. It's not in our marriage. It's not in our vacations. It's not in our leisure time, our hobbies. It's in Jesus Christ. Our worth comes from Jesus Christ. But you've got to draw close to him so that you can get that. You can get what you need from him. And he gives us everything. 2 Peter 4, 1 through 4. It helps us to keep an eternal perspective, knowing that we've already won the victory. Jesus Christ has already given us the victory. We know what eternity holds for us. So any suffering in our lives, anything we're going through here, as Paul often taught, is, is nothing compared to what's waiting for us in eternity. It's important to keep that in mind as we're suffering well in marriage. As we're suffering well in marriage, we need to continue to love our spouse as ourself. And that's hard, which we got to realize that our spouse is not the enemy. Our spouse is one flesh with us. So we have to continue loving our spouse as ourselves. And it's hard to dif and difficult to love those who are being unloving. And God knows that, right? We looked at it a little bit last time. What credit is it to us if we love those who love us? Jesus said even, even unbelievers do that. Even the Gentiles love those who love them. As Christians, we're called to love those who are being unloving. And that's the way it can feel oftentimes in a marriage when, when it's struggling. It can feel unloving, but we're called to love even through that. And our motivation to love others is not that they're loving us, but it's that we love God. Okay? Our motivation is that we love God. And we're going to follow his commands. Jesus told us, if you love me, you will obey me. You'll do what I tell you. When he restored Peter in John 21, 15 through 17, I just love the picture. What does he ask Peter? He's, Peter denied him three times, right? And he's restoring him. He's saying, Peter, do you love me? And Peter kept saying, yes. And Jesus says, well, then tend my sheep or feed my sheep. Tend my lambs, depending on your translation. He's saying, if you love me, take care of my people. The two greatest commands, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The reason you can love your neighbor as yourself is because you love the Lord your God, not because your neighbor's being nice. We keep loving our spouse even when they're being unloving. I just want to remind us really quickly, because uh, I think it's so good, this, this love that we're talking about is agape. Right? It's the word for love in Greek, it's agape. And I think William Barclay does a great job of, of, of reminding us what agape is. It's not an emotion. Okay? He says, the real meaning of agape is unconquerable benevolence. If we regard people with agape, it means that nothing they can do will make us seek anything but their highest good. If they hurt us and insult us, we will never feel anything but kindness towards them. That quite clearly means that Christian love is not an emotional thing. This agape is a thing not only of the emotions, but also of the will. 
It is the ability to retain unconquerable goodwill towards the unlovely and unlovable, towards those who do not love us, and even towards those whom we do not like. Agape is that quality of mind and heart which compels Christians never to feel any bitterness, never to feel any desire for revenge, but always to seek the highest good of absolutely everyone. And that's a high calling, people. That is a high, high calling. So what do agape actions, agape actions look like? 1 Corinthians 13. You guys know it as the love chapter. You can look at it. I'm not going to read it, but just some highlights. It means we're patient, kind. We love truth. We protect. We trust. We hope. We persevere. We're not jealous, not arrogant, not selfish, not easily angered. Keep no record of wrongs, and we do not delight in evil. And finally, it says love never fails. It should not fail in your marriage even if it's struggling, because we're called to suffer well in marriage. We need to focus, part of that is focusing on the good traits of our spouse. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, is of good repute, if there is anything of excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Man, we are experts at that when we're dating or early in our marriage relationship. These two could tell you right over here. You know, you talk to me about Jana when we were dating and early in our marriage relationship, I could tell you every fantastic thing about her like that. And maybe you knew Jana a little bit and you knew some of the things and you said, well, but doesn't she do this? And I'd say, who cares? Doesn't matter if she does that. I can handle that. But then our marriage starts to struggle a couple years into it. And now all of a sudden, I can tell you all the little things that she does that annoy me. Every single one of them, I can list them off. And you knew me when we were dating and you said, but wait a minute. When you guys were dating, you said that she was wonderful and fantastic and had all these great qualities. I'm like, those things don't matter. This, she's annoying me. <laughs> How do we go from one to the other, people? We ought not to do that. We ought not to do that. When we're dating, we focus on the good. When we're married, we should focus on the good. Continue to focus on the good to help you love your spouse as yourself. Respond to difficulty and conflict in the spirit, not in the flesh. We went over that lots last time. I'm not going to go into it again. We need to be in the spirit. It's not natural. It's spiritual. We've got to be submitted to God to do that. One thing I just want to bring up is when you do eventually get to difficulty, conflict, marriage negotiations, arguments, whatever you call it in your marriage, you know, we're going into some serious negotiations, whatever it is, uh, remember that your spouse is not your enemy, okay? Uh, Roger and, and Becky Tarabasi have a great prayer, and you wouldn't, don't have to use that specific prayer, but any type of prayer, pray before you go into marital negotiations, people. Whether you do it together, which is great, or individually, you've got to do it. Because most of us, when we're going into those arguments, we put on the armor, right? But it's not the armor of God. It's the battle armor. And I am going in to get complete and absolute submission from my wife. <laughs> Surrender. She is going to I've got the armor on, and I'm going in. Guns a-blazing. All right? But if I will just say a simple prayer like this one, I will get disarmed, and it will put my heart in a totally different place. Let me just read it to you. There's a, it's just an example. It says, Lord, help us to resolve this conflict. Help us not to hurt each other. We know that we are in a spiritual battle because the Bible says that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the evil forces. We need your help, your wisdom, and your understanding. We are both hurting and are thankful that we can come to you for help. Please help us. We are both imperfect and in need of forgiveness and grace. We both love you and love each other. Help us to resolve this conflict. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the best things you can do for your marriage is pray before you start having those negotiations. Or as soon as you figure out that you're losing control, say a prayer. It will change your heart and it will change the way you guys talk to each other. Be quick to ask for and grant forgiveness. That example of graciousness, what may be what snaps your spouse back into walking with God if you're gracious and offer forgiveness?
So we're called to suffer well in marriage. And we do that not because, man, that's what we got married for, but because we're a sinner married to a sinner. And sometimes things are tough. And since divorce is not an option for us, we've got to do what God calls us to do. Stay married, suffer well through the difficulty so that we can get back to the place where marriage is fantastic. Because it is fantastic, people. It is absolutely amazing. I am very thankful that God gave us marriage because it's an, it's, a, it's an amazing thing and fantastic. So I'll just say that each, conclude with this. Each married Christian needs to commit to following Christ in this. And I know it's hard when you get in the battle, but I hope that you remember Peter's words when you get into the battle and commit to following Christ in this. And I'll say each Christian friend or family member of a married person needs to help them through. When they come to you with difficulties, help them through that struggle, not out of the struggle. Because they want to get out of it. And we can't help them get out of it. we got to help them through it. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it challenges us. And we ask for your spirit to inhabit us, Lord, so that we can do what you've commanded us to do. Because these are hard, hard things. They do not come naturally to us. They only come to us because your Holy Spirit indwells us. They only come to us as we submit to you and commit ourselves to following you. Not to earn anything on our own account, Lord, but because of what you have done for us. We already have eternal life if we know you as Lord and Savior. But we want to walk in a manner that you've called us to walk in. We want to, to walk in a way that other people, witnesses to other people and makes them want to know more about you, that draws them closer to you, Lord. Because as always, it's not about us. It is about you. I pray that you keep that before us in our thoughts each and every moment of our lives. Help our marriages to thrive as we follow you. In Jesus' name I pray.